0: Kiko wandered from shop to shop.
1: I am going to give you three riddles. That the whole universe is
2: the dream of Vishnu. We love stories! It's time for the apple
3: seed. Filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers, and we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share around the kitchen table or the living room. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. We're going to give you plenty of fuel today. You're going to hear stories from Susan Strauss. She's going to tell a story called The Wolf's Eyelashes, one of a series of stories about wolf legends that Susan tells. You're going to hear from Zet Harbour uh, with a story called the innkeeper's clever daughter when the innkeeper has trouble... Maybe he doesn't at first see that his daughter is just the person to help. But first, you're going to hear a story from Willie Claflin. This is a story called "Daydreamer Seeks Benefactor." And if you're familiar with Willie Claflin and his work, he's known for his fractured fairy tales. His companion Maynard Moose, a puppet storyteller, who has his own catalog of storytelling recordings and often accompanies Willie on stage. Willie is known for his silly songs and his great sense of humor, but before Willie was a storyteller, how did such a unique guy find work? Well, Willie Claflin is about to tell us himself in this story. Again, it's called Daydreamer Seeks Benefactor, about when he tried to find work as a professional daydreamer. What could go wrong? Here's Willie on the Mm Appleseed.
2: When we moved back from the road, we spent uh, three and a half years building his house together, my wife and I. And in Maine, they say, the experience of coming up with the plans for a house, building a house together, going through all that labor, either it cements a marriage together in a way that nothing can ever drive it apart, or when the last nail is driven, one person jumps screaming into a car and drives off and <laughs> is never seen again. It was the second case it obtained with us. And I was going to have custody of our boy, Brian, who's 12 years old, but he was going to be with his mom over the summer. It suddenly occurred to me that I was gonna to have to get a job. <laughs> or what our friend Nikki calls a j- 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 job. See, I'd taught at the children's school for all the zucchini you could eat, basically, and it was all it was a barter system. I'd teach, I'd get zucchini, everything was barter, we didn't believe in soiling our hands with money and stuff like that. But as the years went by, more and more people became eager to soil their hands with money in, and they left and went back to the city. There weren't all that many people left. I thought, well, what, what do I know how to do? How can I get a job really to support me and my son? I thought, well, what am I good at? And I thought, well, I'm really good at daydreaming. In fact, I remember in the third grade, a teacher called my parents in, said I spent most of my time in school daydreaming, and I'd always been fascinated with the idea that underlies all of Hindu religion and mythology, which is that the god Vishnu, who is asleep on the milky ocean, On Ananta, the unending serpent of eternity, dreams up the whole universe, that the whole universe is the dream of Vishnu, and these dreams go on for hundreds of millions of years, and the whole dream ends, the universe collapses back into Vishnu again, he sleeps a deep dreamless sleep until he dreams the next universe, and everything in the universe that Vishnu is dreaming is also dreaming. It's a dream within a dream. And I thought, this is perfect, because as a professional daydreamer, I can also be living this spiritual life completely in sync with Vishnu. So, I also knew that I was really good at lying on my back and watching the clouds go overhead and change you know, from rhinoceroses into choo-choo trains into Santa Claus's face and stuff like that. And I was really good at looking in the fire and watching little trolls and dragons go up the mountain and down the other side and the embers on the back and the knots in the woodwork all the way around the bedroom, all those, all those pine boards. I, it was like a cartoon strip. I took a different board every night and I made a little story about everything. I thought, I'm really good at this, so I ran an ad in Harper's Magazine. It said, Daydreamer seeks benefactor. It cost me 20 bucks. I ran it in the classifieds at the end. And I sat back and waited for a response (laughs) A week later, I got my first card Daydreamer seeks benefactor You disgusting leech (laughs) If your contribution to society and yourself Is reduced to begging for money And shirking responsibilities and work Move to Russia (laughs) A strong and moral America Does not grow from degenerates such as you Ah! I thought, what have I done? Every madman in the country knows my address I was appalled But three days after that I got a letter from a third grade teacher in, in, In Tallahassee, Florida She said, I'd like to know more about what you do I think you'd make a really nice writing assignment For my kids Four days after that, I got a letter from Jackie Blue with a dollar. And Jackie Blue was 18 years old. She enclosed a Polaroid photograph of herself and a dollar. I was on my way. And a little, a little poem. The poem went something like, Birds fly high up in the blue, dreaming their dreams so true. If they can fly free as they are, then why not me or you or something? And then over the eyes, of course, they weren't dotted. They had little circles over the eyes. Perfect handwriting and my first dollar. And then a couple days after, a letter from someone named Dix Hollabaugh, who was a reporter for the Des Moines Register. And the letter said, We're really interested in your story. We want you to write an article for the Des Moines Register, Sunday magazine, circulation couple hundred thousand. We want you to send a photograph, and we're gonna pay you two hundred and fifty bucks. I thought, I am on my way. Two hundred and fifty bucks, I'm gonna be a professional daydreamer. So I wrote in this letter about different kinds of daydreaming I did and I sent my photograph off and I got 250 bucks, this check, back in the mail and then I started getting a flood of letters because the readership was huge. So all that spring into the early summer, there were all these letters in my mailbox. They fell basically into three categories. There were letters from people like Jackie Blue who were like 16, 17, 18, 19 years old with little poems and $1 in each. Then there were a number of letters from... um, Matrons who said, you keep doing whatever you think is important to you. Take vitamins, take good care of yourself. I'm sure you're going to find out what you're supposed to do. And have you read the Bible? (laughs) And then, of course, the third category from... The madman, I can see the electric spaces between the faces. I know just as well as you do that things on the outside are actually on the inside. It's all inverted. It's twisted. But you and I are going to rise to the top when the top comes down to the bottom. <laughs> <laughs> These were scary. These letters reminded me of my first trip to the city when I was 11 years old. I'd come down from Wolfboro, New Hampshire, to visit my cousin. We took my first subway ride ever. We got on the subway, and there was a man in there. He said... This place is charged with electricity All the people are on the ceiling Waiting for the tide to go out It's like Dylan lyrics You know, it was like (laughs) So I was pretty scared And then um, finally I got this letter that said Soon two strangers will appear at your door And answer your deepest questions Well, I had two questions. One was, what was the ultimate nature of the universe? And the other was, how can I make a living? So (laughs) I eagerly anticipated this visit. So one day I heard a car pull up. Now, our driveway was such, and this little shed roof we built across the road, you could see people coming, and the parking lot was about 100 feet from the house, so you could see people get out of the car, watch them as they came down towards the house. So I watched this very well-dressed couple coming towards the door. About halfway to the door, they stopped, and they looked up at the wall of the shed-roof house, and they stopped. They pointed, they talked, they looked back at their car, they almost turned back, but then they came towards the door. I realized what they'd been looking at. Uh, My my wife, before she left for Nashville, had made all these God's eyes. Now, if you're too young, you won't know about God's eyes, but... You got some sticks, you crossed them, you wound some yarn around They were spiritual mandalas You stuck a bone or a feather or something in the middle of it You contemplated, you stuck it on the wall, you burned some incense Everybody made God's eyes, had to make God's eyes My wife made these huge God's eyes with bones in the center And she had put on the outside wall of the cabin a six-foot God's eye And in the center of the God's eye was a horse pelvis And the sockets, the sockets looked down at you like this Up there on the wall It was like Baba Yaga's house But they were forthright, they were courageous They came all the way up to the door And then again, they still couldn't see me It was a little slit, kind of like an arrow slot In medieval castles there where you could see people coming And they paused again by the door And pointed down to the right And talked a little bit and almost turned back And I realized what they'd seen there Was the pile of bones That my wife had not yet made into God's eyes it wasn't a particularly threatening-looking pile of bones, except for the pig skull with a hole shot in the top of it that was on the, the top. It just happened to be on top. It was just. A but they were very brave. They knocked on the door. I let them in. I ushered them over to the table, and I put a board across the bathtub so I'd have a place to sit. And I said, uh, "Would you like some tea?" They said, "No. Do you know the end is coming?" I said, you know, a lot of world religions have had this apocalyptic streak in them. It's not only, you know, old, old mythology. And I realized they weren't listening to me. They were pausing and waiting to go on. So they said, well, do you know about the Mark of the Beast? Six, six, six. And I said, you know, I was just reading something. Have you seen Bergman's movie, by the way, The Seventh Seal? I think you guys would really like it because it's all about the apocalypse and stuff. And there's a lot of references to the book of Revelations. And did you know that some scholars think it's supposed to be 616 and not 666? true again they paused in mid-sentence and I realized we weren't having a metaphysical discussion about the nature of reality in the apocalypse they'd come to make a presentation I was interrupting their presentation so they told me all this stuff in the book of revelations and they left some pamphlets and they went on and I realized when they left that that It had been nice to have the visit, but I had even more questions about the ultimate nature of reality than I'd had when they arrived, and I still had not figured out how to make a living. And so I was kind of depressed, and I picked up my guitar and started to play and sing. Now, old folkies know. Old folkies know that when you pick up your guitar and start to sing and you catch yourself singing something, there's usually a reason, a subconscious reason, why you're singing it. And this is what I started singing. I want to go home with the Armadillo to country music from Amarillo and Abilene They got the friendliest people and the prettiest women you've ever seen I thought, why am I singing this song? And then all of a sudden I remembered Amarillo, Armadillo, Amarillo, Stanley Marsh III in Amarillo, Texas. Anyone here, raise your hand if you ever heard of Stanley Marsh III? Okay, well Stanley Marsh 3 multi-millionaire Texan. And I first ran into Stanley Marsh Street when I was driving across the country. A couple years before that, I was driving across the Panhandle, across Texas. Now, driving across Texas, if you come from New England, is an amazing experience. You expect the state to change every two hours. we have been driving across Texas and driving across Texas and driving across Texas. And on Route 66, outside Amarillo, saw all these cars buried at an angle up to the windshield in the sand couldn't make any sense out of it at all. I thought maybe they'd been dropped out of an airplane, maybe a government project, recycling stuff, make a windbreak to do some soil erosion conservation. had no idea what it was. When I got back to New England, I read this article called Panhandle Pop. Those cars are Cadillacs. They're still there. They're on Cadillac Ranch, which belongs to Stanley Marsh III. Incredibly wealthy and very eccentric Texan, these cars are all buried, these Cadillacs, they're buried at the angle at which the Titanic sank. It was his comment on the direction, he felt, of modern American society. And all over Cadillac Ranch were these art installations. He paid artists to do all these art installations on Cadillac Ranch. So I thought, well, I'll just, I'll just send Stanley a letter and explain what I do, and maybe he'll pay me a salary. So I said, uh, oh, by the way, he also imported yaks so that he could change the name to cattle. He was going to breed the cattle on the yaks and have cattle yak ranch. He was going to do this. He was. He still is. He's still there. You can get him on the Internet. Stanley Marsh 3. Check it out. An amazing guy. Anyway, I decided I'd send him this letter. So I said, dear Stanley, I'm a professional daydreamer. All I need is maybe ten, twenty thousand $20,000 a year. I wonder if you could support me in this. And I waited and waited and waited. And finally, this letter came. It was a big letter. It's actually the largest personal letter I ever got. <laughs> Stanley Marsh three, American National Bank Building, Amarillo, Texas. Willie Claflin, Route 1, Box 53A, Blue Hill, Maine, June 1977. <clears throat> Dear Willie, good for you. The world needs more dreamers, underlined in orange. <laughs> Willie, in certain African tribes, when the chief is asleep, his dreams foretell the future of the tribe. Should a tribe member be so unlucky as to wake the chief while he is dreaming, he is put to death because by having broken the chief's dream, the tribe member has affected the tribe's destiny. Nixon woke up too many of us, Willie. (laughs) And we need more like you to get us back in the right ruts. You are hereby declared a member of the Museum of Contemporary Thought. Cheers, Stanley! And there were two cards there, making me an honorary member of the Museum of Contemporary Thought, which was great, because I knew there was a whole wing dedicated to Pat Nixon's hats. (laughs) But there was no money. I uh, realized it was the end of the road. I sent back one more quick letter. I said, Stanley, some of my ideas have practical applications. Here's a typewriter where the keys rest on a, on a red-hot metal pad, and, and, and it runs. you run strips of leather through it, and when you hit the keys, it brands letters into the leather, and when it gets to the end of the carriage, instead of going ding, it goes... Bruh. We're those cylindrical cow moos. I never heard back from him again. I realized my days as a daydreamer were pretty much over. And... Um, I was really depressed until I finally figured out what I was going to do. I realized if instead of daydreaming while I'm lying down, I daydream while I'm standing up. And if instead of daydreaming to myself, I daydream out loud, I could be a storyteller. <laughs> and that's how it happened. It's a true fact. The true fact. Thank you.
3: We wonder sometimes how our storytelling friends came to be storytellers, and that was Willie Claflin telling you the story of how he came to be a storyteller. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a lot more. You're going to hear from Susan Strauss with The Wolf's Eyelashes and The Innkeeper's Clever Daughter from Zeta Harbor. You won't want to miss a word.
2: I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
3: It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard Willie Claflin with a story called Daydreamer Seeks Benefactor about Willie trying to find work before he became a full-time storyteller. Coming up, you're going to hear a story from Susan Strauss, one of a collection of wolf stories that she has collected and shares. The Wolf's Eyelashes is the name of the story. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? stories come into our lives in so many ways from families passing them along telling to telling from the pages of great books from radio and podcasts through the things that we see on screen and through great songs in fact great songs I've always looked on as kind of zip files. You just touch one, and it opens up a memory that's a lot bigger than the song, or can, right? And I am in the studio today with Mark Waite, and there's just nobody better for talking about this kind of thing Wow! than a longtime member of our BYU Radio family, host of Sound Mind and Through the Garage Door and all kinds of other musically rich
4: things here on BYU Radio. Mark Wait's pleasure to have you with us. So you finally dug to the bottom of the barrel... And here I am. <laughs> Mark
3: Waite understands. Uh, th- there is there is almost nobody who has kind of a deeper
4: knowledge. Oh, stop! Stop know. that. You're yes. you're Mr. Music. Uh, you're a player. Well, you, you know, you, I'm a musician. You know what I play? The stereo. The stereo. I play the <laughs> stereo very well. I'm a, vir- I'm a virtuoso of the stereo, and I can't stand country music oh. it to me it's it's bamboo under the fingernails on a chalkboard that's a heck of a way to begin a segment like this right and yet Lucinda Williams all oh. is forgiven with Lucinda Williams I will wow. listen to any I have all of her catalog I'm pretty sure most or all, if not all and I think the most evocative song the one that really grabs me and just the title yeah just slaps you right in the face how try this what What image does this conjure for you? A song named "Car Wheels on a Gravel Road oh she's from the south, yeah, yeah, she's from I think Louisiana, but I've got ancestors from Alabama, so maybe there is something in my blood um and I have had a gravel driveway, yeah, have you ever lived in a place semi rural or rural? where the the house was set back far enough that you that it was too way too expensive to have concrete or even asphalt for a driveway, you had a gravel road.
3: You are describing the house I grew up in. Really? You, yeah, you are. You are describing the house I grew up in and that's that's you, you, all you
4: mentioned was the title and it took me to the house <laughs> I grew up in. It's amazing yeah. how yeah. evocative that is. Well, yeah. this song took takes me back to Even though I wasn't listening to it at the time, it it is a, a time travel for me yeah. to third grade. I lived in Paradise, California. Does that ring mm-hmm. a bell? Pa- oh, gush. Gush, I say. Gush. It's gone. <laughs>
3: yeah, it's Paradise, gone. California. Yeah.
4: I lived there in third, fourth, and wow. fifth grades. And I went to a little school called Canyon Elementary that was an ancient schoolhouse that only had three school rooms, so it was just first, second, and third grade, and I went to third grade there. It's burned down now. It's gone. My fifth grade school house is burned down as well. Long gone. The houses are gone. My sister went there and and, uh, took pictures of our old old house, just a chimney standing in the middle of a forest. It's very forested. We had a little creek going down through the back of the property, and there were vines that I could swing, play Tarzan and swing (laughs) over the the little creek there. And... uh, But what really gets me is this simple little stanza from the song. She goes, there goes the screen door slamming shut. You better do what you're told. When I get back, this room better be picked up. Car wheels on a gravel road. Now, have you ever been told that when I get home, this room better be picked up?
3: Listen, man, you're, it's, it,
4: you're, just, I don't even need to hear Lucinda Williams. Just you reciting the lyrics is taking me back. But the, the screen door slam, slamming shut, I don't have screen doors anymore. Yeah. But the thought of a screen door... We used to have screen doors. What's the function of a screen door so that you can leave the doors of the house open because you have no air conditioning? Yeah. I grew up without air conditioning. If you ain't, if you can't afford uh, asphalt to your house and a driveway, you probably can't afford
2: the screen door is your air
4: conditioning. The air conditioning yeah. and to, to keep the flies out. Yeah. So you can open the house for a cross breeze, but there's always a hole. There's The screen is always torn somewhere. Yeah. But anyway, so when I think screen doors, I think of just a half a block up the road, up Wagstaff Road from our house there in Paradise, was a little tiny grocery store. The size of a convenience store, but it wasn't a convenience store. It was a full-service grocery yeah. store. But little. They, tiny. Yeah. The size, yeah. The size of, a, of a convenience store, but so full-service that they actually had a resident butcher. Wow. And they had a screen door on the front. <laughs> and so once in a while, my dad would give me a, a, a dime or a nickel to take my little sister, because I'm in third grade. She's eight years younger, so she was two or three or four years old. Yeah. And she and I, I would walk her up to the little store, and you'd open that screen door. Now, in a grocery store, the screen door always, the handle, the, the push handle always was a, an ad. It was a metal plate. There with, was an ad for with bread. an ad on it for, yeah, the, 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 right. the push plate was had an ad for Wonder Bread yeah. or something. <laughs> and so just the thought of pushing that screen door open and hearing it slam shut behind me, that was a lot of fun. Man. The... Now, and, and my dad would – so I'd take my little sister up, and she loved root beer barrels. Now, kids, there used to be this thing called penny candies. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think penny candies exist anymore. Yeah. But for one penny, one little piece of copper, you could get a piece of candy. Yeah. And she, this little three-year-old loved the root beer barrels. And if I didn't buy her a root beer barrel, there was going to be trouble. There was going to be tears. There was going to be screaming because she was a screamer, you know. She'd clench yeah. her fists and scream. So I had to buy her the root beer barrels, and once and sometimes my dad would tell me, "Okay, Mark," because he was trying to raise me. I was an awkward kid, backward, yeah. even more so than now. <laughs> and so his thing was to make me at uh, when we were on trips together to kick me out of the car at a gas station, go ask for directions from the gas station oh, attendant, wow. and I had to memorize those and take them back. <laughs> and so he would say, "Okay, here's fifty cents. I want you to walk up to the market and give get me a half pound." Of ground round. So he's in the mood for a burger. Sure, sure, yeah. Not ground chuck. Yeah. Ground round. I want a half pound of ground round. <laughs> That's, That's somebody's a got to write that right song. There.
2: That's, <laughs>
4: and a couple of times I screwed it up. I didn't yeah. quite get it right because I was backward. I was nervous and fumbling and trying to explain to the butcher what it is I wanted. Yeah. You know, um, sometimes I was successful and sometimes I wasn't. Yeah. So just just the thought of a screen door the slamming point, shut, it, it, just a wave of things hit The me.
3: places we've been taken by a single song from a single artist, from a genre you don't even like. <laughs> <laughs> Lucinda Williams. Wheels on a
4: Gravel car Road. Wheels a car wheels on a gravel. Wheels road. On That's a the gravel name of the album road. too, so easy to find.
3: Yeah. And these are wonderful days because you can just about find anything you want. There used to be a time when it was difficult to find some of the music that you remembered, but these are not those days. You you can you can get just about wherever your you can get wherever your phone is and find that music, right? Well what a pleasure to spend a chat with Mark Waite about a Lucinda Williams song, Car Wheels on a Gravel Road. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, and it's a pleasure to chat with friends about some of the ways in which great stories came into their lives. Always happy to chat with Mark. Now up next, a story from Susan Strauss, who finds all sorts of human wisdom to share in animal tales. This one is called The Wolf's Eyelashes, an amazing story about a girl who receives a gift from a wolf that allows her to see people in a completely new way. Now before we dive in, it's worth noting that in Japanese folklore, wolves often appear as divine messengers, often appearing in places in nature that haven't been touched by men. Sometimes they're even associated with protection, guarding travelers as they walk home, or saving crops from wild animals, other wild animals. Now, without further ado, here's Susan Strauss with The Wolf's Eyelashes, here on The Appleseed.
0: In traditional Japanese folktales, the natural world is a source of great wisdom, not found in human society. Prosperity often follows the character who is attentive to nature's teachings. At one time, the wolves of northern Japan were hunted to make room for horse farms. But today, they are protected. There once lived a wealthy tradesman... "'who had a daughter named Akiko. "'Akiko was generous and well-loved. "'Early in her life, her mother died, "'and her father remarried a woman "'who was sharp-tongued and mean. "'Envy surged through every inch "'of the new wife's soul. "'She tried to weaken Akiko's grace and charm "'by ordering her to take on extra household tasks.' although the work loomed before Akiko like an immense mountain. She worked until it was done, and she still managed to greet visitors at the door with a smile and beggars with a bowl of rice. Oh, she consoles every lost soul, complained the wife to her husband at night. If I didn't watch her, she would give everything away and make beggars of each of us. The jealous, scheming wife pushed a wedge between Akiko and her father whenever she got a chance. Maybe it wouldn't be so easy for her to give money away if it if it were hers. Every beggar knows where to get a handout— "'and they flock to this house. "'Are those the kind of people you want here "'when your customers come to visit? "'You will see. "'Your customers will go elsewhere.' "'No matter how hard Akiko worked, "'the wicked wife's complaints increased. "'When accused, "'Akiko stood silently before her father.' head bowed, hiding the tears that welled up in her eyes. Being a proper Japanese girl, she never defended herself. Still the next day, Akiko was back at work with a smile and goodwill in her voice. This only served to anger the wicked wife more I don't know why, I don't know why, but I hate her, her smile, her voice, everything. Then, on New Year's Eve day, her hatred finally found its way. Oh, now look! The wife flew into a fury. Akiko cooked old rice for the festive meal. The god of happiness will be offended. We will have bad luck for a whole year. The tradesman sent Akiko out of the house that day to make her own way. Alone and forlorn, Akiko wandered from shop to shop. No one needed her. Strange for a girl from such a family to wander the streets, they whispered behind her back. Soon she became weak from lack of food or a place to rest and begged at an innkeeper's door, Please, honorable sir, I need some food. Will you take my quilted coat in exchange for some hot rice with fish and a cup of tea? Give me your coat, said the innkeeper. How can I know if it is worth something if I don't sell it first? He snatched her coat and shut the door before she could give him an answer. Trustingly, Akiko waited on the step. Dressed only in her thin kimono, she waited. That good coat should bring a few coins from the pawn shop, and then I will have a bowl of warm food. Once again, Akiko's spirits became bright as she imagined the hot rice with fish She went on to imagine working in a fine house with light-filled rooms and flowers for arranging. But her imagination grew thin as the waiting time passed on into the evening and the cold nipped at her through her kimono. She knocked at the innkeeper's door again, "'Sir, may I wait inside until your servant returns with the coins for the coat?' "'You again! What a nuisance you are! You will discourage customers. Get out, or else I'll turn the dogs loose on you!' "'But Akiko was already running, running from her shame, running from the glares of strangers in the street.' It began to snow. Akiko grabbed an old sack from a garbage pile and kept running, running for the forest at the edge of the town. I would rather die in the forest than any street and town. Let the wolves eat me like people say they do. It is winter. The wolves must be hungry. In no time they will find me and end my miserable life. When Akiko entered the forest, she was somehow quieted, somehow comforted. She walked through the trees now hanging with snow. On and on she walked. With each step, she welcomed the imaginary wolf from the darkness that surrounded her. Now deep in the forest, she suddenly heard a slow growl. Crouched low and cautious, a wolf crept from the shadows. Akiko dropped to her knees. Wolf, swallow me! The wolf. "'circled back upon its tracks, but never dropped its gaze. "'I don't eat human beings. "'Human, real human beings are rare, but you surely are one.' "'At once, Akiko became curious. "'How can you tell that I am really human?' Through my eyelashes, I can see who you are. Here, take these two. When you are walking in a town, look through them and you will see the truth. Do not trust whatever someone tells you. Trust only what you see through my lashes. Akiko thanked the wolf and set off at once to the nearest town to see for herself how the wolf's gift worked. When she arrived in the town, Akiko seated herself in a busy intersection and watched people rushing about their business with bundles and baskets. Some people were elegantly dressed. These people look so respectable. Should I trust them? I'll try the wolf's eyelashes. At once, everything changed. Now the woman dressed in silk had a hen's head sticking out of her kimono, jerking greedily as if pecking for seeds. She was followed by several servants with the heads of mice and fish. A merchant strutted by with a pig's head emerging from his fine kimono. Across the street, another merchant poked his fox's head from a doorway. His eyes darted quickly back and forth across the street. Not one human being walked "'among the crowd. "'Akiko was ready to leave in despair "'when she saw a poor woodworker "'who did not change "'when she looked at him through the wolf's eyelashes. "'She followed him down the street "'and out into the country, "'and when she caught up to him near his home, "'the woodworker turned and said, "'Who are you? "'You have been following me like a ghost.' Akiko told him her story, and the woodworker took her into his home and fed her, although he had little to share. In time, Akiko grew strong. In time, they built a beautiful inn out of his small home, and in time, they fell in love. Then one day, Akiko found a spring nearby, magically flowing with a fine rice wine. People came from miles around to visit the inn with this famous fine wine, and soon their business prospered. Always, Akiko had a bowl of hot rice with fish for passing beggars and monks. One such beggar wept. "'at her generosity. "'Oh, I, oh, years ago, I I turned out my own daughter, "'who was as generous as you. "'And now, who knows if she still lives? "'Oh, I, I deserve this hard luck, "'which is an equal match for my wants.' hard heart. This beggar was, of course, Akiko's own father. Akiko forgave her father and told him the story of how the wolf's special way of seeing saved her. Akiko's father came to live with her and her new husband and to care for his new grandchild. Often, Retelling the family story of The Wolf's Eyelashes.
3: The Wolf's Eyelashes from Susan Strauss here on The Apple Seed. In just a moment, you're going to hear a story about the innkeeper's clever daughter. When the innkeeper gets in a jam, it doesn't occur to him at first that his daughter might be just the person to help. You're going to hear the story in just a moment. I'm Sam Payne.
1: You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne.
3: It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a story from Susan Strauss, one of a collection of wolf stories that Susan Strauss has shared all over the place in front of audiences large and small. That one was called The Wolf's eyelashes. And before that, you heard a story from Willie Claflin, a story called Daydreamer Seeks Benefactor, a romp through the story of how he became a storyteller. Now, up next, we've got a story called The Innkeeper's Clever Daughter. In this story, the innkeeper is in trouble, and he doesn't at first see that his daughter, who's terrific at solving riddles, might be just the person to help him out of a jam. The storyteller is at a harbor, and again, we're happy to bring you the story of the innkeeper's clever daughter, here on The Appleseed.
1: Long ago in Russia, there lived an innkeeper and a tailor, and they were very good friends. You see, every afternoon they met in the tea shop. There they sat with their glasses of tea, and they talked about many, many things. They talked about the weather, they talked about politics, they talked about food, they talked about fashion. And today, they were talking about cleverness. They were trying to decide who was the most clever man in their entire village, Why, the tailor was certain that it was himself, and the innkeeper was certain that it was him. And they started to argue back and forth who was the more clever man. Well, their argument grew more and more heated. And finally they did what everyone in the village did. They took their problem to the local nobleman. Well, I cannot tell just by looking at you which of you is the more clever man. I shall have to set you a task. I am going to give you three riddles. I want you to come back in three days' time with the answers to these riddles, and whichever of you has the more clever answers, he will, of course, be the more clever man. Here are the three riddles. First, what is the swiftest thing in the world? Second, what is the fattest thing in the world? And third... What is the sweetest thing in all the world?" And so the tailor went home, and he walked back and forth in his house, and he muttered, and he tugged on his beard, and he came up with answers. The innkeeper went home, and he paced in his house, and he walked back and forth, and he pulled on his beard and scratched his head. His brow was furrowed, and he was grumbling, and finally, his daughter said, Papa, what is bothering you? The tailor. You know, we got into an argument today about who was more clever, and we ended up in front of the nobleman. and now I have these three riddles to answer. I, I can't think of any answers to these riddles. I shall be made a fool of in front of the entire village. Papa, tell me the riddles. Maybe I can give you the answers. Oh, don't be rude. "'Ridiculous. You're a mere girl. "'How could you answer something that is so difficult "'for a grown man like myself? "'No, no, no you'll never get them.' "'Papa, tell me the riddles.' "'Ah, oh, fine. "'The first, what is the swiftest thing in the world? "'The second, what is the fattest thing in the world? "'And the third, what is the sweetest thing in all the world? "'There, you see, they're impossible.' "'Papa, those are easy.' And so she whispered the answers in his ear. And on the appointed day, he stood in front of the nobleman, the tailor by his side. The tailor gave his answers first. The nobleman listened. And then he said, well, innkeeper, what answers do you have for me? The innkeeper took a breath and gave the answers his daughter had given him. The swiftest thing in the world is thought. "'The fattest thing in the world is the earth herself, "'and the sweetest thing in the world, "'ah, there is nothing sweeter in all the world than sleep.' "'The nobleman was very impressed with these answers, "'and he announced that the innkeeper was indeed "'the most clever person in the village. "'The tailor left very disappointed, "'and the nobleman had one more question for the innkeeper.' Good man, he said, tell me, where did you get the answers to those riddles? Now the innkeeper, while not truly clever, was honest, and he told the nobleman that it was his young daughter who had given him the answers. Ah, said the nobleman, I should like to test your daughter. See just how clever she is. I'm going to send you home with another riddle for her. And the nobleman reached and he pulled a rope. And from somewhere a servant came out. The nobleman quietly gave him instructions. The servant disappeared, and in a few moments he returned with a large basket filled with three dozen eggs. He gave the basket to the innkeeper. Take these to your daughter. Tell her this. In three days' time, she must hatch each one into a chick, and you must bring them back to me. The innkeeper took the basket, returned to his home, and his daughter was waiting expectantly to hear the good news. But she saw the look on his face. Oh, it's worse than before, said the innkeeper. Now we have another riddle, this one even more impossible. Papa, just tell me the riddle. Oh, you you have to take this basket. It's got 36 eggs. Each one must be hatched into a chick in three days' time. It's impossible, I tell you. (laughs) Papa. And the daughter picked up each egg, one after another, and she weighed it carefully in her hands. And after she had held each egg, she told her father what he must do. And so... In three days when he returned to the nobleman's house, he did not have a basket of chicks, but instead he had a handful of beans. He told the nobleman that he was to demonstrate the answer in the garden. So they went out into the garden. The innkeeper bent down and he pushed his finger into the dirt, making a little hole. And he was just about to put one bean into the hole when the nobleman stopped him. And he took the bean between his own two fingers and he pressed it, and it was smashed between his fingers. And one after another, each bean was smashed between his fingers. He looked at the innkeeper. He said, Can you be so foolish as to think you could grow a bean plant from a boiled bean? Only so foolish as to think I could hatch chicks from hard-boiled eggs, said the innkeeper. And so the nobleman realized that this daughter of the innkeeper was quite clever. "'I would like to meet your daughter,' said the nobleman. "'I would like you to have her come to my home two days from now, "'but tell her that when she arrives, "'she is to be neither walking nor riding. "'She is to be neither dressed nor undressed. "'She should be neither overfed nor hungry, "'and she must bring me a gift that is not a gift.'" So the innkeeper returned to his home. It's even worse this time, he told his daughter. And when she heard the nobleman's instructions, she just laughed. And then she asked her father to go to the marketplace and buy the longest fishing net he could find. He was to bring home a goat, two quails, and some almonds. He did these things according to his daughter's wishes. And so, the morning she was to go to the nobleman's house, she got out of bed, and instead of changing into her work dress, she took that fishing net and she wrapped it around herself, around and around and around. And then she put two almonds in one hand, and with the two quail in the other, she went outside where the goat was waiting. She put one foot on top of the goat's back and the other dragged along the ground, and in this way she went to the nobleman's house. He could see her approaching. He saw that she was neither dressed nor undressed. He saw that she was neither walking nor riding. And when she was nearly at the gate, she popped the two almonds into her mouth and ate them. So now he knew. She was neither hungry nor overfed. And then she took the two quail and placed them into his hands. And the moment they touched the nobleman's hands, they flew off. So this was a gift that was not a gift. I have been looking for a wife as clever as you for a long time, said the nobleman. I would like you to come and live in my home and I would like to marry you, for you to be my wife. But you must make me a promise that you will never, under any circumstances, interfere with my judgments. The innkeeper's daughter paused and then told the nobleman, yes, she would come and live with him and be his wife, and she accepted his condition. "'but I ask one thing in return. "'If I am ever made to leave your house "'for any reason at all, "'I must be allowed to take with me "'the one thing in all your house "'that I find most valuable.' "'The nobleman could see that this was a wise request, "'and he agreed. "'And so the innkeeper's daughter came to live with him, "'and after a time,' They did fall in love, and there was a great wedding feast. And they lived happily for a little while. You see, one day, a farmer came to the nobleman's wife. He had his hat in his hands, and his face was full of sadness. Please, you must help me, he said. I've just been to the nobleman with my neighbor. I I need someone to help me. You see, I have a mare, and she has been heavy with foal. I share a barn with my neighbor. He has a cart. Well, during the night, the foal was born. No one was around. In the morning, when we opened the door, the foal was lying under the cart. So my neighbor said, "Ha! I have a foal. It's my cart's foal. It must be mine. And I argued with him. This could not be. Everyone knew that my mare was going to have a foal. We finally had to come to the nobleman and present our case, and do you know what? He sided with my neighbor. The nobleman's wife sat quietly for a moment, and then she agreed that she would help this man. She gave him his instructions, and a few hours later he was out in the garden at the nobleman's house, and there he held in his hands a fishing pole. He had the fishing line down in the drinking well, and he stood and waited. And finally, when the nobleman came for his afternoon stroll through the garden, he saw this man fishing in the drinking well. Are you so crazy as to think you will find fish in the drinking well? said the nobleman. Only so crazy as to think that a cart can give birth to a foal. And now the nobleman knew that his wife, had interfered in one of his judgments. He went to her. I told you, I told you before we were married that if you interfered with any of my judgments, you would have to leave my house. And now, I have no choice. In the morning you will have to return to your father's home. She agreed and reminded him of his promise that she be allowed to take with her the one thing that she found most valuable. The nobleman agreed and quietly walked away. That night, they had their final dinner together. It was a quiet meal. No one had much to say. The nobleman was deeply sad. And every time he emptied his wine glass, his wife filled it again and again and again until finally he was sound asleep in his chair. That's when she called the servants over and had them carry him out to the wagon. They drove the wagon to her father's house. They placed the nobleman in the bed. And in the morning, when he opened his eyes, he saw that he was not in his own home. There, smiling at him, was his wife. Wife, he said. I don't understand. Why am I not in my own home? Ah, uh, she said. You told me that I could take with me the one thing in your house that I found most valuable, and I picked you. Now the nobleman understood how much she loved him, and now he understood how much. He wanted to be with her. And so they returned to their home together and had a three-day feast to celebrate their marriage. And from that day on, they sat side by side, and together they made the decisions. And that's when they all lived happily ever after.
3: The Innkeeper's Clever Daughter, here on the Appleseed, that innkeeper is lucky to have such a daughter around, especially after he doubted, at first, whether she might be of any use at all in helping him get out of the jam he's in. It's been a pleasure for us today to bring you not only The Innkeeper's Clever Daughter, but also The Wolf's Eyelashes, that story from Susan Strauss, that Japanese folk tale, and at the top of the hour, Willie Claflin and his rollicking tale of how he became a storyteller. The story called Daydreamer Seeks Benefactor. It's always a pleasure to bring these stories to you. Communicate with us. We love to hear from you. We love to hear some of the stories that these stories make you think of. You can email us at theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed@byu.edu. And, of course, you can find us online at byuradio.org or by following or liking our social media accounts on Facebook and, of course, Instagram and Twitter as well. I'm Sam Payne. Our producer is Jeff Simpson. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. This hour was written by Alyssa Mingorance. And I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed.
1: Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.